Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Youth and Education podcast. In this episode, I am being interviewed for once and I'm being interviewed by Anna Trefui, who's our Deputy Director at LKMCO. Together, we discuss a report that I authored earlier this year called The Talent Challenge. And we talk about teacher retention in English state schools. We discuss the importance of good line managers in helping teacher retention. We talk about shortages in primary versus secondary schools and potential tension between the desire for rapid improvement and long-term models of talent management. We touch on lots of things that will be of interest to school leaders or MAT leaders or just anybody who works in a school really or is interested in education and is interested in different ways that we can approach improving the retention and development of teachers. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Good morning. You find me here with the lovely Aisha Small. Um, And she has agreed to talk to me about her talent challenge report that she undertook in collaboration with Ocean Over. Um, and really, Aisha, I just want to get a few kind of thinking about what brought you to this point. So I know that you've been a leader yourself before in schools. You still currently teach, obviously, as well. Um, what was your journey through teaching to then become a school leader? Can you talk me through that a bit? Yeah, so um, my journey for teaching was I entered teaching via a scheme called Teach First, mm-hmm. which at the time existed only in London. Um, I would never have considered teaching before Teach First, to be honest. Uh, my training as an engineer. I thought it was like an interesting thing. It was kind of, it'd been going for a year or two, so no one really knew what it was. My parents were like, why do you want to be a teacher? You just trained all this time to be an engineer. Why are you wasting your degree? <laughs> um, and then I was like, no, it's cool. You're going to do it for two years and then there'll be some interesting business contacts. I'm sure it'll be good. Uh, 10 years later, or 11 years later, I'm still in teaching. So did that. I trained in Islington, a school that doesn't technically exist now. Um, it's called Islington Green. I think it's called something else, like Coleray or something. Um, then I worked for a, a few different schools in uh, kind of central in the London. Um, so from there I went to Haringey. Uh, from there I went to Enfield Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to a school in Harrow. And each time I kind of got a bit of a promotion or whatever it is. So I'm a maths teacher. Uh, then I became a head of maths. Um, and I kind of did another kind of head of maths, enhanced head of maths role um, and became a kind of senior leader, seconded to SLT in the school I was in in Harrow, which is called Cannons. Um, and then after that, that was only for a year, um, and then I decided I wanted a permanent SLT post and I moved to my first school outside London, which is in Hertfordshire, okay. um, which is where I still currently work as it happens. Now that tells me about what you've done. Mm-hmm. What experiences did you or didn't you have along the way that helped kind of develop 
that leadership journey? Yeah, so the main reason I stayed in teaching is because I had an excellent head of department in my first school. I think the first, you know, when you're training, it's all about your head of department. The school itself could be awful, or the school could be great, and you have a terrible head of department. But my head of department was a, a lady called Rachel, and and she was a really really good head of maths, very very good. She was enthusiastic about her subject. She gave me lots of scope to learn new things. She was very supportive. Like I wasn't a very good teacher at that time. You, know, you think you're wonderful? I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we um, all think we're wonderful. Yeah, come on now. Like, I and then you look back. Oh no! Like, I remember I had a kid jump out of the window and all this kind of stuff. It was just no, I wasn't good. Um, but she was really empowering um, and I remember I got like, a small management responsibility to do something rather to do with IT back when IT people cared about that and throw loads of money at it um, so she was good then I moved to another school where I didn't stay there very long actually I don't know why I think some other opportunity came up I met up with my old head and he offered me something um, but yeah so then I had a not very good experience in my and another school where I joined as like second in maths and the person who was my boss I didn't really get to know him because he went off sick like really really suddenly um, and then I was suddenly head of maths and I didn't really know what I was doing because I had just become second in maths and I had to lead this department um, results were not very good and it had to be turned around very very quickly and so I was learning on the fly really um, and Alongside that, the school was in a lot of financial difficulties. So the head teacher who had hired me stayed not very long, I think less than a year, and he suddenly disappeared. And the school was in massive deficit. And then we were told that the training budget was frozen. So we were not allowed to go on any courses and we couldn't spend any money on professional development. And that probably was my formative, like really shaped how I thought about professional development because I realised that I still needed to develop my team, but I didn't have any money, so how was I going to do that? And then, although they didn't spend any money on like courses traditionally, one thing that they did, we were taken over, we were kind of run by this company called Edison, like an American education company, and they paid for all the middle leaders to be coached, that was the one thing they spent money on, and it was amazing, it was really, really good, so they paid for us to be coached. And they paid for us to learn how to kind of do peer coaching and coach one another. And I think that probably completely shaped how I feel about professional development. Because uh, I realised that you could use people around you as best you could. But also you didn't need to have all the answers. And also it made me be much more creative in terms of uh, how you develop people. So if it wasn't in maths, I looked around the school to see who was good at this particular thing. So I had like a kind of exchange thing with the head of English had to work very closely and we you know if I'd noticed something really I used to go into a lot of people's classrooms around the school just I don't know write that and if I saw anything good or if the kids told me someone was really good at something I'd get that teacher to come and do some training in our math department meetings so we just use our math meetings as development um, and I think that's probably where that 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 drove it um, after that when I became the head of maths and kind of like SLT in another school that approach was still there so I just thought, use the meetings to develop people, use skills, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and that kind of carried on, really. I think so I the kind of thing. constraints that you were within helped you think a bit more creatively. Very much well, so. we'll, yeah, we'll come back to that a bit later when I'm sort of asking about how 
how schools, I mean, we can't just throw money at a problem anymore um, and hope that it will work, especially given funding context. So, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that a bit later on. Um, so let's move on to the project. Can you tell me a little bit, what is the talent challenge? You know, why is it important that we need to um, think about this? Yeah, I mean, it seems a bit trite to say about there's a teacher recruitment challenge, but there is. <laughs> there is. Um, and, you know, so there's an issue with teachers staying in the profession. Uh, there's an issue of certain subjects in terms of teachers entering the profession. So it's interesting because politicians in general, the message that we hear is that there is not a teacher shortage. And it's true in some respects. So in terms of primary, we, we have more people training to become primary school teachers. But when you look at secondary, the numbers are really stark. So um, if you look at the overall teacher workforce, no, there's not necessarily an issue, headline figures. But when you start to drill down into it in particular areas and particular uh, phases and also subjects, there is a problem. Um, so there's that. And also you know, there are teachers um, who become trained and then they don't stay. You know, it's well known that many teachers leave before they've um, been teaching for five years. Um, and then within that, it's kind of how do schools who have teachers retain them? if they can or develop them so that they don't go off to other schools and that creates instability in the system. You know, I I have taught in schools where there's a lot of instability and it is not good for students. It's kind of, you know, you, you can be the best manager ever, the best leader, but if you don't have staff who stay, you cannot do anything of any worth. In the report you break it down, you know, as, as you mentioned by region, um, I think uh, London was one of the areas that particularly has a kind of a high well, a shortage of staff coming in and also a high turnover of staff. Yeah. How does that affect some of the schools that have slightly more deprived communities that they are trying to serve? Does it hit them more than others? Yeah, because in general, you know, it's like double whammy. So um, generally speaking, schools in more deprived areas uh, find it harder to recruit staff in the first place okay. because of the perceptions of, of teachers. Um, and then... Once they have them, it's harder for them to retain them. Partly, London's almost kind of a special market in a way because it's London, it's the capital, so you have a lot of young staff coming in uh, who want to live in London, for example, but then it's super expensive, so once they get excited and they like living there, they can't really afford to buy a house there. So there's lots of different things about the turnover in London. Um, Are there any other regions? I seem to remember a couple of others coming through. Yeah, OK, so other regions, uh, they're all in the southeast. So, um, South East, London, um, and I can't remember off, off, off the top of my head, but they were all kind of southern regions, basically, um, where there were some issues regarding that. And that doesn't always make headlines. Yeah. Especially because some of the areas aren't the sexiest to talk about either. No. Um, <laughs> um, so, you kind of, in the report, you start to break down the workforce and you consider this group of millennials, which I'm very sad to realise I'm a year out of. Um, <laughs> gutted um but that's okay we talk about a little a bit of their motivations so i know we don't want to make massive general sweeping statements about you know motivations of an entire generation but what does some of the research indicate might be um behind you know motivations and reasons for going into stuff that that millennials may have yeah okay so basically to um so to allude to your point millennials first of all it's it's kind of hard to tie down the definition of millennials because it depends where you look. Um, but, so in some 
places. I was born in 1980. Some places consider me a millennial. I feel oh. I'm a bit old to be a millennial, I to could be, be in. I could be in with a chance. <laughs> but yeah, generally you're looking at um, under 35, definitely, and sometimes it's kind of like from 1982 onwards. So that, that kind of an age group. Um, and the thing with millennials, as you say, you don't want to massively generalise, but the general thing is that they are more kind of purpose-driven um, compared to previous generations. And so where that comes out for schools is, well, theoretically, schools should be onto a winner because it's kind of, you come to work and you're changing young people's lives or however it is that schools choose to market themselves. Um, but alongside that, they're also fairly ambitious. Like, you know, they, they want to do things and they want to make their mark and kind of change the world without sounding corny. Um, and they want to have an employer who's explicit about that, who also does that. So it's not necessarily about getting the best pension or the best benefits or whatever it is that might have appealed to slightly older generations stereotypically. Um, and where schools can sometimes maybe don't understand that so much is, generally speaking, you know, school leadership teams are not millennials. They're maybe slightly older, so kind of 30s, 40s, really, 40s, 50s possibly 60s and some of the things that they feel motivated or might have motivated them doesn't necessarily motivate staff and also the fact that people the kind of people who go into senior leadership are motivated by very different things to people who don't which sitting here saying talking to you sounds like an obvious thing to say but i really think that slts forget this yeah they just really like you forget, forget how hard this. it is to have teach a full timetable when you're yeah. in SLT. It's kind of those things. I had a boss once who, um, he was a deputy and he was trying to, I was talking to him about a member of my team. So I wasn't in SLT at that time. And then he was like, well, I don't know why um, like person X wouldn't want to do this thing because they get more money. And I was like, he doesn't care about money. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just couldn't understand it. He could not understand it. And I was like, this guy did not care about money. He had a reasonable amount of money just in his own personal circumstances, he was very happy doing the job he was doing. And that was not the way to appeal to him. A promotion was not the thing that he cared about. Other things were, you know, if it made it better for his classes or it made it easier, his job easier, those kind of things mattered to him. But the things that mattered to the um, gentleman I was talking to, the member of SLT, were not the same things. And I think it's important to know what your staff really care about. Like Individually, you have to understand them. So you can tap into them. And how would you go about that? You know, what's the kind of practical way of doing that? I know it's a bit of a daft question, but... No, I think it's a good question, actually. I think you have to talk to them. <laughs> yeah. I know it sounds like such an obvious thing to say, mm. but you can't go around assuming that people are motivated by exactly the same things as you. Mm. and Or even that they're motivated by the same things that used to motivate them. I know for me personally, my motivation changed quite a bit when I came, became a parent. Um... In actually, way... that, that came through in the Why Teach report as well, didn't it? That actually people may have gone into teaching very much with that um, millennial motivation of, you know, well, I, I want to make a difference. Um, but let's be honest, as you get kids and a mortgage, you know, a st- steady income, working in a school where there's not a lot of chaos and high staff turnover, that probably becomes more important to you than whether you can climb the leadership scale really quickly or um, some of the other factors that may have kept you in the profession when you were younger. Yeah, very much so. And also, like for me personally, a thing that I've realised is challenge is very, very important to me. So I could be whatever title it is, but if there's not really any challenge and I don't feel I can impact anything, I really don't want to do that job. And it doesn't matter how much you pay me. Um, 
I'm a bit contrary, <laughs> not always like that, but you know, that's for me, that's an important thing. And so, one of the phrases that came out in the in the piece, and you mentioned earlier actually that you had a, a small leadership role quite early on in your career, um, and the phrase was uh, letting a title follow leadership. Mm. So, what does that mean, and how was it helpful to you when you were coming into teaching? Yeah, so that's a really beautiful phrase actually. I think that might have come from when I was talking to um, Dame Sujon uh, Challenge Partners. And basically, it's saying that sometimes you, you give people a responsibility before they get their title. So lots of times people talk to me uh, about helping them to get jobs or whatever it is. So and I like, look at the application form and I'm just like, well, you need to show that you've kind of already done the job. And then they're just like, <laughs> and so the way that schools can do that is to give people responsibility before they're, not before they're ready for it, but kind of, well actually no, kind of before they're ready for it, but when the stakes are fairly low, so it's not part of their responsibility necessarily, but they can kind of upskill a bit alongside being somebody who knows what they're doing and they can play around and make mistakes and it's, it's not. It's not a bad thing, all you know, aspects of a role rather than having to do everything. Um, so it goes to for people who are ambitious, or even just for people who like a bit of a challenge and are not ambitious in the traditional sense, it's more about their growth and allowing them to, or encouraging them, or creating space for them to do something that is not necessarily part of their current job role. But then once they've done that, they can prove themselves. And it might be that they're so good at it that you then decide to make them the actual title they're already doing anyway. That's basically what it is. And I've, um, I've kind of worked in schools or seen examples of, you know, where it happens the opposite way, where you just give someone a title to keep them. Um, they don't know what they're doing. It's kind of a title only really in name. And they're not empowered to do it. Like, you know, it's just a little gesture. So I kind of... I, that's why that phrase stuck out to me as one that actually gets it in the right order. We talked about schools, you know, the need for schools sometimes to improve rapidly. And you talked about a kind of difficult experience you'd had in, in the school that had similar circumstances. So is there a tension between needing to in school, improve a school rapidly and then also employing models of talent management that are slightly slower to grow? Um, and sometimes take a little bit more time than you can allow. Uh, and if you do think that tension is there, how can schools resolve it, can they? I think there absolutely is a tension. Um, in the current climate, I believe there is. So, you know, the thing that comes to mind for me is that there was some research not that long ago about superheads and their effect. And, um, you know, I can't remember the details off of my head, but to paraphrase it, superhead came in, uh, everything was wonderful for, what, like two, three years? And as soon as they left, boom, 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 mm. and people can't see this, but my hand is going down. Um, and to me, that in, that encapsulates the issue because people will do what they're managed on and measured about or for. So I've not phrased it properly, but if you measure something, that's what people are going to work on. So if you measure results, we measure very narrow parameters, that's what people are going to work on because that's what their pay depends on that's what their performance management especially now depends on so i think people do things that are short term and look better good 
so they will raise results in a very quick time. So one common thing that used to be like a really common was uh, if you were a head of maths or English and you worked in a particular type of school, then you're all about getting the kids through in November uh, because then you'd have another go to do it. You know, yeah, I did it. <laughs> um, or we always put in people who we knew were ready, but I know schools who didn't necessarily do that. Some people I know did them in year 10, then they did them again in year 11, then they did them again in year 11. Um, because that's you can't blame people for doing that. Um, but I don't think it has to be like that. So I think you have to be, I think you have to be savvy. You do have to show some kind of improvement. You can't be like, oh yeah, in ten years time you're going to see an improvement. Until now <laughs> it's like it's rubbish. Sorry about that. Like, that's that's silly. I think you do have to have some short and quick gains. But at the same time, you also have to think what's your long term goal. You know what is best for your school community what is best for you know, your staff. What's good for your staff is generally good for your school community because happy teachers are going to teach students well. You know, happy, empowered, skilled teachers are going to teach students well and if they don't, you need to do something about that. That's your job as a senior leader. But um, in, the main, in the main, if you've chosen the right people and they're in the right places, that's going to happen. So what I think is you, you have your eye on the short-term stuff and then, but you also have longer term things and just the, the easiest way to do that is to make it someone's role you know you might have somebody who's looking at more of the short term things that are required but in terms of longer stuff that might be somebody else's role but they, they, they have to look at how are things going in short term how are things going in medium term what's our talent pipeline it sounds very corporate but you know basically who have we got here who's going to be our future leaders or who have we got here who are our great teachers how do we keep them what, what are they interested in you know so on that point one of the things that you um, highlight that you can do in the report is to um, basically identify and develop your high potential staff and you mentioned the importance of doing that formally so that people you know they they get the recognition for it they kind of understand that yes they are one of the few and and they will be developed accordingly. I totally understand that if I were to be the person that was identified. But how can you play that so that people who don't necessarily have formal identification still feel all right with it or feel that they can work towards it? So how, basically, how could you implement a system like that to make it as equitable as possible? Yeah, so when I put that in, I kind of felt a bit like you hmm. in terms of, uh, so that came from a, a report that Deloitte did, I think, um, where they talk, they, they have a, an annual millennial survey. So it was either Deloitte or there was another kind of talent management one, I can't remember, but it's one of those. And it was with the, with the National Offending Management Service. Yes. I know that they do this, don't they? And they kind yeah. of look very carefully. It's part of their performance management review. And then they kind of filter through, if you like, these people that would then go into this scheme. Exactly. Um, how could you see it playing out in schools then? Right, so the National Offender Management one was, was interesting because they had, so they had formal processes where people would be flagged up, uh, maybe to be recognised, so uh, via their appraisal, for example, um, via like a few other bits and things that happened regularly throughout the year. And so anybody who got nominated for this kind of thing would automatically be like a rising star, or whatever you'd call it. But then they also had other things where if there are opportunities available anyone could kind of apply for it and then they were put on the scheme as well so in terms of schools there are two sides 
one size is it's important to formally recognize people because status is important and sometimes you know we all know someone or maybe we've been somebody who your manager or somebody whoever it is says yeah yeah we definitely value you there's no real backing for that they just say it every now and again when they think you're going to leave and then nothing really changes um and then you're just like well i've been here for five years now and people have been saying that every time and I don't know, I'm still in charge of the sweet shop. Like, what's going on? Um, so there's that versus, okay, yeah, we value you. We're going to put you on a fast track scheme or we're going to pay for you to do this or we're going to second you or we're going to, you know, you're actually saying formally you're somebody that we value. But we've also know people who think, why is that one getting all the opportunities? I'm as good as them. They don't do anything. They just sit around in the staff room picking their bum. So, you know, why them? <laughs> Well, you know, whatever you think they do. <laughs> and it's not fair when you feel like people have been the anointed ones. Unless you're the anointed one. Um, but everybody else, you have to have fairness and transparency. Mm. Also, you know, I'm really conscious of, um, especially I've spoken to some people recently, where, I don't know, like you can look out for people who are like you. You know, like I would be attracted to a particular kind of person because... I'm that kind of person, um, whereas other people might be really, really good, but you just don't notice it because they keep themselves to themselves or whatever it is. So I think schools need to have clear processes. And the way I could see that, because like, you know, you will go on our once to watch program if you, mm-hmm. whatever it is in your performance management, whatever it is across the year. But so you have clear, clear criteria where if anyone who meets that is automatically on that system. So they know what they can aim for if they want to. Alongside, you know, um, other more informal processes as well. But I think it's important for people to know who these people are. Uh, because then if they don't agree, maybe they can say something about it. Rather than it's like it's a bit shadowy. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Yes. I think that shadowy thing is something that we can be quite guilty of. Um, not just in schools, in all it's sorts of walks of life. It's just you kind of naturally lean towards your own biases. So having a formal route. Maybe, you know, also supplementing an informal would make total sense. Um, We've talked a lot about leadership. I'm aware that not everybody wants to be promoted into leadership. You mentioned the example of your colleague who the extra money didn't matter to him. Do we have enough formal routes um, that may or may not be better paid anyway that help people stay in the classroom but advance in their practice? So my immediate answer to that is no. Like a really short answer. Um... That was the whole point of a smart skills teacher, right? That was what it was supposed to be, and that was what my original intended route was going to be. Um, I know a lot of multi academy trusts kind of reintroduce that in a way, via lead practitioners, I guess. But no, it's not immediately obvious to me that there are as many routes. In fact, I think that's a, as a personal opinion, not necessarily something that was in the report. I think that's a failing in teaching, in that. Like I think of my partner, um, and there are lots of different opportunities in her organisation to do something different and new without necessarily being promoted, because you can kind of move across. Um, schools are, sorry, my bias is secondary schools, I've worked in secondary schools, but secondary schools are a you know, medium-sized organisation with hundreds and so people in it, um, and there could be many opportunities, but it's very rigid, it's very, you're a class teacher, Maybe you're some other in-betweeny thing, you're ahead of faculty, uh, then you go out the curriculum route, or you go out the pastoral route, 
um, there's maybe a little bit of kind of lateral movement, perhaps if you're below like the kind of faculty level of middle management, not much. Um, and in fact, the most movement comes when you're an SLT. That's when you start to get a lot of variety in your role. You know, you're an assistant head, but then you can go and do various things. Or you're a deputy, you can do both various things. But I mean, you have to wait eight, nine, 10, 15, 20 years until you get to that and you could lose people in between. It also assumes that you want to become a leader. Yeah, which you might not want yeah, to. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of kind of attracting people, so you, you touched a little bit on mats there. And I think that mats do, some of them do the kind of sell really well of like, if you come to us, you will have this kind of professional development. Quite often because they kind of have the financial backing to do it, but also because it's that collegiate sense of, mm. well, we, you can speak to these five other heads of English across different schools. You're not just working in isolation. Mm. So you talk a bit about employer brands. Um, can you explain a little bit more about what that might be? Yeah. Because um, um, let's be honest, t- education quite often shies away from corporate language. You know, we said it earlier, but in the word brand, it's like, ooh. In fact, I read a piece by Gerard Kelly not this long, not long ago, was talking about how we kind of sell ourselves as schools, and that's probably an abomination to some. But what do you think that might look like, and, and how would we make it work? <laughs> yeah, I think um, education really shies against that thing. But the truth is, what we need to understand is that schools are a brand whether they want to be or not. You know, um, in my local area, we have a primary school. We didn't even consider sending my kids there because the brand is poor. Now, you wouldn't say it in that language, but when you get talking to other parents, they're like, oh, you don't want to send them to school X. Now, interestingly, I know a head teacher who's worked with the school who tells me that it's actually really good now, but I live two roads away from it and I wouldn't send my kids there. Because they're not selling their school. They're not sending their school. Mm. Um, and it's so, you might not like we might feel a bit uncomfortable about it, but the truth is our school already is a brand and it's told in various, various ways. So it's told by the way that um, the children file out after school, it's told in the way that they hang around at the bus stop, it's told in the way that your staff talk about it on social media, it's told in your exam results, you know. Um, and I think the main challenge for schools actually is to how to distinguish yourself from some other school. That's the main challenge because in general, most schools are gonna talk about the same thing. You know, you want, we want, uh, our children to leave as empowered young people or some other variation of that. We want them to go out and be my school motto when I was a kid was heirs of the past, makers of the future, like I still remember it. Um, and it's kind of so I went to a grammar school we talk about people going to become future leaders, that was basically the chat. Um, but many schools you could just cut and paste it and it could be any school. So I think it's, you know, what in particular does your school do? And an interesting thing at the end of the report was about how schools in more challenging circumstances, which is my particular interest, because that's kind of, and they like, that's the school that I started teaching in, that's the school that I'm, the kind of schools that I'm, I'm really, really passionate about. Um, you know, how do they do that? And the truth is, often they don't have that much to sell, <laughs> because the results aren't great. Nobody wants to stay working there, so what do you do? And um, what the Behavioural Insights team found was that you, the way to get, this was more to do with advertising, uh, when you're advertising jobs was to get was to sell the challenge so it's kind of when you come to work here this is the challenge rather than what some people might think which is uh, come here and make a difference so it's more work here have a challenge and then you get a particular kind of person applying who actually is pretty well suited to your school so in terms of branding to answer your question 
I think you have to understand what your school's about. Uh, you have to know really, really clearly what people will get from working at your school, particularly your school. And I think schools are poor at that. I think for too long, schools have been like, okay, we need this, we need that, we want you to be this. No, it's more, you come to work for us, this is what you, we will do for you, this is why you should choose to work for us, etc, etc. And it's a bit of a different shift. And I think some schools are starting to realise that now because they've got vacancies that they've had for months, a year. No one's coming. Um, because in some subjects, basically, it's a buyer's market. You know, I'm sorry to use super corporate language, but it's kind of, you know, I'm a math teacher. If you're a half-decent math teacher, you can walk into a job. And that is a fact. I'm sorry for people who aren't math teachers or think that's a really arrogant thing to say. It's true. Buyer's market, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it's true. You know, maybe not if you work in like the place where there's one school and half a sheep. That's not you. <laughs> but, you know, in um, fairly mobile markets, uh, not just London, but various schools around the country, I don't work in London anymore, that is the case. Mm. So schools need to understand that. And in the Why well, Teach report at Jeremy, one of the case studies of a school up in Lowestoft, mm. really hard sell if you think about it. You know, right out on the East Coast, school in dire circumstances, and yet Nadia had every kind of, they say the head teacher there, every ounce of conviction that she was going to get the staff she needed. Yeah, so, I've met her, like I can yeah, see why. Incredible. Because she's, um, okay, so that is the brand sometimes, sometimes, despite what I just said about Superhead, sometimes the brand is the head. Sometimes you move because you want to work for that person. I've applied for jobs before because the head has impressed me. Mm. And I would work for them. Mm. And it's kind of some, you, know, you have to know what it is, like what's your selling point? Um, why would people come and work for you? Maybe it's because, you know, you've got an awesome science department and your head of science is amazing and this is what they do. Maybe that's what you're selling. And it's kind of, you can't just have this generic thing about the school as a whole. Like, no, why should they uh, apply for this particular role in your particular school? What kind of person do you actually want? Like, you don't want to just fill it with any old body who's going to be leaving in two terms because the school's not right for them. Like, no one wants that. You just wasted £2,000. And so, last couple of questions for you. We talked a little bit earlier about the financial constraints that schools are working with at the moment, probably mm. even more so than when you were in that chaotic school, although I realised they were in financial difficulties too. Mm. Given the funding cuts, can you give schools some practical ideas of things they can do that won't cost the earth that means that they could still develop their staff in the ways that we've been talking about? Okay, so one thing um, that I haven't mentioned was performance management. Mm. So this is something that all schools do. And that affects all staff in schools, not just teachers, actually. And I, in general, from talking to lots of people and from my observation of various things, performance management is done pretty badly, <laughs> often. Now, I've worked in places where it's been fantastic and it felt like a proper professional development thing. And I've also worked in places where it's been, uh, send me an email, we'll sign it off. Which is actually, you know, it's rude. It's not a way of telling your staff. So if I were to say one thing, that's why we were listening, I can you think about how you do your performance management? And beyond the, we need to prove that we're getting value for money out of our teachers because Ofsted's want to look at that. Beyond that, you know, how could you genuinely use it? And my suggestions would be to decouple the um, accountability uh, function and the professional development function. Completely decouple them. And that could be done by maybe you you might have two different people who did it. So somebody who was all about professional development, we see that you have this potential, and by the end of this year, what do you need to have done to get to that point? And then just talking about how the person developed when you meet. 
So often schools, it's once or twice a year before we meet, maybe making it terminate instead. Um, and then accountability is still important. I'm not going to be silly and say it's not. So that can still happen, but it's a different person. Or if that's not possible, then to happen just at different times. Because often the conversations are merged and you cannot have somebody being honest about what they need to develop alongside the chat that's going to decide if they go up a pay grade. You just, it just not, isn't going to happen. Yeah, it's a little bit like that tension between head teacher and governors. You know, they head teachers are presenting governors with the information they then hold them to account on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is a model that can work, but only if there's a kind of honest working relationship about it. I think it's quite tricky. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So that'd be my number one thing. And then my second thing is um, uh, coaching and mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be done, well, can be done as expensively as you wish or cheaply as you wish. Um, and I would suggest that uh, new staff, but also any staff who are new to a position um, or new to a role, are given a coach uh, or mentor, depends how you want to do it in your school, what, what, what their particular roles are. And that should be someone who is not in their performance management structure. So, and probably not even in the department sometimes, so that they can talk uh, impartially. If that's not possible, then I would suggest that they, if they're able to, uh, like, um, do a kind of swap scheme with another school um, because then again people can open up properly and talk I've benefited from coaching um, of heads in other schools for example cool. so you uh, call this piece a think piece right um, and we are obviously at LK and Co are a think and action piece are those your take homes like think about how you perform and to manage your staff and then also see if you can develop them through kind of mentoring or coaching any other kind of actions, big things that you'd like people to take away from this report? Yeah, I think the performance management one is pretty big mm. because when you actually start to think about how it's done and how effective it is, and also to talk to people at all levels of organisation, it becomes you know, my experience as somebody who's a senior manager, performance management, very, very different to somebody who's a class teacher, super different, um, and even a middle manager. So you know, middle managers get a weekly meeting with their boss, possibly fortnightly, um, as does anybody above that grade. Uh, as a class teacher no um you, you you would not have a formal meeting with your manager apart from in performance management times um unless you explicitly go and ask for it like you'll talk to them and that kind of thing but you wouldn't have a formal meeting uh, talking about how your role's going and so on uh, for time constraints reasons but you get my point mm. um and then the other thing uh, probably going to what we were saying about okay it would be useful i kind of hate the word audit but it would be useful to consider in your school, uh, your multi-academy trust, your organisation, considering uh, teachers in different stages of their career, what is the offer for them? Beyond the fact that they have a boss who's uh, into that kind of thing. So what are the actual channels for anybody in an organisation to improve? And is it consistent across your organisation? Uh, and if it's not, then look at where it's done well and basically find out how they do it and try and replicate it. Mm. I think it's probably lessons for us at LKM Co as well. Like it's mm. it's not just schools, is it? I think it works across organisations. Mm. Some people are just lucky. It's kind of, you know, I was lucky in that I happened to go to a school mm. where my head of department was really, really good. I had people who joined the same time as me who joined in a different department who did not have a very happy experience and, and they are not teaching now. And in fact, they left teaching maybe after two or three years. Um, same school, different uh, department. 
So therein we have solved the uh, retention issue. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, that's probably uh, it from us for now. Thank you, Uh, No, absolute pleasure. Thank you, Aisha. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.